We just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to come before you and to worship you. We ask you to guide and lead us as we look at this chapter and show us what you would want us to see from it all. In Jesus' name, amen. Second Peter chapter 3, starting at verse 1. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and by the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For, they, for this they willingly and are ignorant of, and by the word of God that that of, by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the waters and in the water, whereby the world that wa then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, and not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We'll stop there. <laughs> So Peter is acknowledged that this is his second epistle, of which we have both. <laughs> All right. In Paul's writings, we have a very small portion of his writings. Uh, and I have to think this is probably true. Peter was a businessman. You know, remember, Peter was a fisherman. He was a businessman. His, his stock and trade was not writing letters, was not encouraging people by, by long you know, documents and, and writing of, of exhortations. That was Paul's ministry. Paul was trained in the best schools, we would say the best schools, the best trainer. He had the number one religious training of the day, and that particular uh, uh, teacher in Jewish history is the number three of all time teachers for Paul. And Paul had you know, the best teacher of, of his day, and one of the best of all times teaching him, that was his forte, to understand the scriptures, to memorize, you know, uh, to be a Pharisee, you'd have had to have the entire Pentateuch memorized. All right, the first five books of the Bible all had to be memorized. Okay, and then he spent time learning and, and learning and learning the prophets and, and, and learning all these things, and that was Paul's forte. He, when God called Paul, he grabbed somebody who was well-trained, ready to go, and then added on to, onto his knowledge. <laughs> you know, he understood the Old Testament from the Jewish perspective, and then God taught him how it was to be applied in the, new, in the new covenant. So that was Paul's ministry. You know, he, he wrote uh, 27 of our 39, uh, not, excuse me, 13 of our 27 books in the New Testament were written by Paul that we know of, right? And we know that we don't have all of his books because in, just in the Corinthians, we know that we only have two letters to the Corinthians and he refers to at least four. Well. We know definitely three, and we believe that it was at least four that he makes references to. All right, and we know there's other letters he kind of references. Uh, there's a place where he says, okay, here's your letter. Make sure that Laodicea reads it, and you read the letter to Laodicea, and we don't have the letter to Laodicea. It wasn't considered uh, scripture. Not that it was a bad letter. It just wasn't scripture. And I personally believe that the apostles and even most of the prophets did not realize that they were writing inspired scripture. They just had something on their heart, they wrote it out, and God says, I'm taking, I'm taking over your hand and I'm writing what, what I want to be said and it becomes scripture. Which is why when people go, well, what about this book? What about this book? What about this letter? What about this letter? Uh, there's lots of reasons many of these letters were not given out. I'm giving us apologetics here. I mean, uh, when uh, the Da Vinci Code came out, they made a big deal of all the apparent gospels and, and epistles that were not, were not given out. And people go, and on, for a long time, people go, well, what about all those books? Well, most of them are real easy. They were written around five or 600 AD after the books were codified and said these are the inspired letters, which happened in 400 AD. So most of the letters that 
they say, what about these ones that were thrown out were written afterwards. Of the ones that weren't written before that, they were so anti-biblical that they're not inspired. All right? Most of them are Gnostic, which means that they were looking for ways to get to know God in mystic ways. And in Gnosticism, you find somebody who has been given the secret message from God so that they can share you the secret message from God that you're not going to get in any other way but somebody coming and giving you the secret messages. All right? And most Gnosticism believes that the flesh is all, flesh, all physical, all flesh is bad, and all spirit, spiritual things are good. They, do, they deny the demonic world. They deny evil in the spiritual world. And anything flesh is bad. Now, I will agree that most things in the flesh are bad because we live in a fallen world, but not all things that happen from the flesh are bad, all right? And they would be the ones that would believe in self-flagulation and torturing yourself to try to, to drive out the bad out of you so that you might be able to live in a, in a purely spiritual realm and, and live in good, good thoughts, and they deny the fact that you can have spiritual badness as well because they would not believe in demons, they would not believe in hell, they would not even really truly believe in heaven. Uh, you get the ideas like nirvana, which is a state of being more than anything else, and you're trying to get to the state of being of perfection. All right, and that's what, where Gnosticism works its way into. It's all about knowing and knowledge. And most of the, from the very beginning of the church, very early on, there was this battle between Gnosticism and God's truth. And uh, much of Paul's writings were in, especially John. John wrote a lot against Gnosticism, but he was also one of the last writers. He was the youngest. He was the one that lived almost to 100 AD uh, and was one of the last writers. And he was watching the church as it drifted into the Greek way of Gnostic thinking and started writing quite a bit of his letters against it. First John, Second John, Third John, are all very much against the defense, especially First John, is a defense against Gnosticism, uh, virtually from beginning to end. And here we see this whole thing. Uh, and it says here, he says, I write this second letter in which I'm trying to stir up, arouse, awaken your pure minds. And this word here for pure is free from falsehood. Okay, not not something that is un, un, but it has been free. Okay, in other words, he's saying, you've been taught, I'm trying to remind you. And the thing that really amazes me as I look to God's word is how many times God repeats himself over and over again, mostly because we are thick-headed and dumb and can't remember things from, from, uh, from one day to the next or one minute to the next, and God says, okay, let me just remind you. And Peter's here saying, I'm reminding you. I'm writing this to remind you not what you, of what you don't know, but what you know. And in one of the letters, Paul said the same thing. I don't feel sorry about having to write this again. I want you to remember. How do we learn things in, in reality? We learn it just from pure repetition. And it doesn't matter what it is we're trying to learn. You know, I'm learning when the baby's learning to crawl. It's pure repetition that finally gets them one day, they're up and crawling. They start standing. It's pure repetition that gets them to the place where they can just pop back up until they're older and can't do it you know, because of their muscles, not because they can't do it, because they, their body just won't do it anymore. You know, but it's pure repetition. How do we learn to run? We, you know, we just start doing it, and repetitiously we start getting that, the, the ability to do it. And how do we learn to read? I learned my, I learned my phonetical pronouncing, you know, my phonetics if you go from old school, which is the right way to learn reading, <laughs> you know, learn how to read because I can sound out my words. Uh, and in today's world, they have uneducated people because we teach sight reading. And sight reading means that when you recognize the word, you know the word. And if you don't know what the word is, you can't sound it out. And you may know the word, but you've never seen it in writing. You don't know the word. And I love it when you teach somebody phonics and they're sounding out the words and go, oh, I know that word. Uh, uh, and by sight, you can only read maybe 1,000 to two or 3,000 words, and that's going to be your limit of what you know uh, for the average person because you have to know what the word is. You don't know how to sound it out, which is why phonics allows you to sound out, and you don't need to know the word. You just read it. Oh, yeah, I knew that word. Didn't, never saw it written down before, but I know. And so he's saying, I'm reminding you. 
not of what you don't know, but of what you know. I'm stirring it up. And this is why, as a pastor and a Bible teacher, we enjoy what we do because, yes, we may be repeating ourselves, but we stir it up. We tie it together in different ways, and we know that people are as dumb as we are. You know, I need to study to be reminded and, and keep remembering and keep getting into this and going through all the things that this great week has been all about. You know, and just saying, God, yep, I trust you. I don't know all of what's going on. I don't know why. I don't know how come, but you're in charge. And this is, you know, what keeps me over and over is, God, you're in charge. Nothing comes our way that God does not allow. Now, and I agree with most of you. I agree. Sometimes I go, God, can you just allow a, little, a few fewer things to come my way? To, you know? But then I have to go back to Romans 8.28. All things work together for good, even when it seems like it's overflowing and it's overpressing. Without those trials, without those tribulations, I won't grow in Christ. All right? God has to take us to the end of our limits. And for some people, that's a lot further than others. Some people get pushed over, the, you know, get reached the end of their limits with just one or two things. Other people go a long ways before they get to their limits. But even then, God's going to say, I don't care how far along you are on the path. I'm going to take you to that edge and push you right to the edge of the cliff and say, are you going to trust me? I've watched several Christian movies over the last couple of weeks. You know, I rewatched uh, God's Not Dead 2, where she was being pushed. If you remember the, remember the, the teacher who had just spoken God's name in, in class and was being pushed to the limits and many of her prayers were God I don't I don't know how much more I can take I know that you're God I know uh, but I just don't you know and God does that to us over and over again he'll push us he'll take us where we don't want to go he'll give us sicknesses he'll give us you know hard times and say are you still going to trust and Peter is being a good example he goes I, I just want to remind you I want to remind you, and we all need to be pushed into remembering. And that's why it's really hard. When we go through these hard times, we have two choices. We draw closer to God, or we rebel against him altogether. And that's exactly what the purpose of the trial is all about in the first place. Am I going to draw closer to God and live closer to him, or am I going to walk away from him in rebellion suffer for a while, and if I am a Christian, I will eventually come back after I've gone through my pity party and my trials and my troubles and drove everybody away and walked away from church or whatever, you know, however far it goes. Or am I drawing closer to God and saying, God, you're all that I have? The answer should be, God, I'm drawing closer to you. You're all I have. But I also realize, because I've done it myself, you know, for periods of time, that I walk away. God, you're just given too much problems. I don't want to deal with them anymore. And that leads to other problems and bigger problems and, and you know, it's not the way to go, but you know, our flesh says go this way. Our emotions take us that way. And this is why I say over and over, we've got to live in God's truth, not our emotions. And that's not an easy thing to do sometimes. But it is what we need to do. God, you said and a lot of times, and, it, you know, and I don't fully advocate this, but there's a whole movement about praying the scriptures, and sometimes they take it way too far, but I do understand. A lot of times my prayers are, God, I don't understand this, but you've promised that it's for good, so I'm holding on to that truth. God, you've said you're not going to push me beyond what I'm capable of. God, I'm turning to you because I'm not capable of this. And I've said over and over that verse in, in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, there hath nothing, no, nothing overtaken you, but such is common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted above that which you are able, but will with the temptation provide a way of escape. The temptation is one that will take us through what I am capable of dealing with without him. Because that's the whole purpose of it. He's taken me to my edge and beyond and saying, what are you going to do? All right. Are you going to depend on your own strength, which we're over the limit and you can't handle it? Or are you going to turn to me and let me be your strength and carry you through this problem? And oftentimes we say, no, I'm going to do it in my own strength. And we fall flat on our face because that's the purpose of it. 
He is going to cross over and say, now you have a choice. Follow me or don't follow me. Don't follow me, fall flat on your face, get a broken arm, leg spiritually, and suffer for a while, or turn to me and be strengthened and, and be content and, and watch me guide you and lead you. All right? And I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it's easy, believe me, but it is, it is easy in one sense. I mean, uh, there's a phrase that the Christian movies keep using, and uh, you know, it's not, it, it's not easy, but it's hard. Or it's not hard, but it's easy, I think they say. Okay, uh, which is kind of a contradiction, but it really is. When we trust in God, it's easy. All right, it's hard to do, but it is easy because I put my trust in God, and God, you're going to walk me through all these things that are going on. And it's important for us to to turn to Him, be reminded. That's why we need to be in scriptures all the time. We need to be in prayer with God all the time. We need to be in fellowship with other Christians. Because if we're in fellowship with Christians, then we have people that come up around us, they're praying for us, they're seeing we're going through a hard time, they're praying for us, they're encouraging us if they're good, godly people. And if they're not, they're going to judge us and you know, we, we just need to ignore them anyway because they're not speaking by God's words. And, and, uh, you know, and this is a sad thing because people all the time, well, I quit going to church because they're full of hypocrites and they're judgmental. Well, go to the ones that are good Christians. Stay away from the ones that are good Christians, even in the church. Uh, the church is always going to have people, number one, that may not even be Christians. Jesus in the parable said of the wheat and the tares, there are people who look like Christians in the church that are not. And they're there, they're the ones that are going to say the wrong thing at the wrong time. Even us as Christians will say the wrong thing at the wrong time sometimes. But these are the people that are there on purpose by Satan to say the wrong thing to drive people out of the church because of the hypocrisy. The, the, and it's, you know, we're human beings. We're going to have a hard enough time saying the right things and doing the right things. But there are a lot of people out there that just aren't Christians. And they're more faithful to church than some of the Christians sometimes. And this is why I keep pointing out, make sure we know that you know that you're a Christian. Because just coming to church isn't going to be a Christian. Just reading the Bible isn't going to be a Christian. Even praying is not necessarily... You know, now, doing all these things, you're probably a Christian, but that's still not a guarantee. If you don't know Jesus, you don't know for sure that you're there. And the actions don't prove that you're a Christian. If you are a Christian, the actions should be there, but they don't prove that you are a Christian. And believe me, over the years, I've seen a lot of people become a Christian in their later years. All of a sudden, it dawns on them. You know, I don't know the... I don't know this Jesus that the pastor's talking about. I don't know this Jesus that the Sunday school teacher, you know, usually it'll be some Sunday school teacher because usually if somebody's in a church that long, you don't stay in a church that long if the pastor's not preaching the gospel and not knowing that you're not a Christian. So usually it's a teacher in behind the scenes or a good friend that starts really talking about knowing God. But it can happen even with a good pastor. I mean, it's not an impossibility to sit in church thinking you're a Christian. And I've met people. I've met people over the years that just dawned on them late in life. You know, well, yeah, I know all the Bible stories. I know that I know that I believe that this Jesus came and I believe that he died. And they keep saying it's for me. And I think I believe that, but I'm not sure. And they're not in a relationship with him. And it's why it's important to stir up, remind people, what does the Bible say? Verse 2 says that you be mindful of the words that were spoken by the pro holy prophets and the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. So he says here, who should you be listening to? The Bible. <laughs> Let's simplify it. You know, he's using the prophet. And he specifically here, even if he's talking to Jews, said the prophets. So he's including more than the Pentateuch. If you get to know the Jews, the, for the Jews, the Pentateuch is the real Bible. The rest of them are just the writings. And every time, you know, see in the Old Testament a lot of time, the, the writings and the, the, the law and the prophets, or the writings and the, and the law, all right? And so this is why the Pharisees memorized the Pentateuch. That was the Bible. That was the Bible for them. You, if you knew the first five books, you, were, you, had, you knew everything you needed to know, and it's probably true. In the first five books, it's pretty much everything we need to know. All right. we, we don't learn a lot about God's grace and mercy in there, but it is there. 
It tells us how to live, why, why we have what, you know, what we, the world we have, why we are what we are. And the first five books of the Bible are very valuable and very important. The rest of it is important too. Uh, for the Jews, they kind of had this idea where you hear people say, and I hate when I hear it, but they'll go in the Gospels. These words are written in red, so therefore Jesus spoke them. They're important. Well, I've got news for them. Every bit of my Bible is important. I kind of despise red-letter Bibles, even though I have one, <laughs> because the red letters are not any more important than the rest of the holy inspired word of God. All right? And so this is important for us to understand. You know, just because Jesus said it does not make it more important than the rest because the Holy Spirit is the one that breathed all the words. All right, so don't get into this idea the Jews had it with the Pentateuch, that if the Pentateuch said it, it was more inspired than anything the prophets had to say. All right, and the Tamak, you know, the, the words of the, the rabbis, which was very high. As a matter of fact, what the, what the rabbis said about the Bible was almost more important than the prophets. Okay, so they had the Pentateuch, the words of the rabbis, and then, okay, we'll take, we'll take the rest of those prophets. They were good books. They, they, they believed that they were important books, but they were kind of third, in third position. The, the writings of the, pro, of the rabbis over the years were more important than the, you know, and we need to be very careful. And, and I met Christians that get the same way. Well, according to my commentary so-and-so, okay, well, what did the Bible, well, the, the, the commentator said this. I don't care what the commentator said. What? What did God say and what did he impress on your heart? And you all know I'm not a big fan of commentators. I read them. I read commentaries. But I read them after I've studied, after, I, after God has spoken in my heart. Then I will go to a commentary and say, okay, what is, what is some of the other pretty brilliant men? And I'm not saying they're not worth reading, but if I haven't done my own study, I don't want to know what they believe, which is why I don't like a lot of the commentary Bibles. You know, the Bibles that are twice as thick as mine and most of them are man's words at the bottom of every page and because people automatically just drop to the bottom of their page and read what that person says about it before God has worked on their heart to tell them what it says. And I am not against them, but let the Spirit talk to you before you go to smart people. Uh, smart people can say a lot of dumb things. All right? And we have a lot of very smart atheists that say a lot of really dumb things. All right, and get caught up in what they say. And people believe them because they're smart. Well, I want to trust God who's a lot smarter than the smartest human being and the Holy Spirit that can tell us what, what his words mean. You know, and you may not be articulate enough to be able to say, say it clearly, but let the Spirit talk to you and then validate what, what it is you believe. But know why you believe it. All right, and it says... Be mindful of these words. And this idea of being mindful, remembering, thinking about, meditating, knowing. All right? Very important. What do we believe? Why do we believe it? And I stress that over and over again. Because I tell you all, I don't expect to have a whole bunch of robots and, and repeating everything that I say. I don't want that. All right? I know what I believe. I know why I believe it. There's certain things I'm very strong on. Salvation is one of those things. You've got to believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven. I want robots when it comes to that. <laughs> okay? The word of God is the word of God, and all of it is true completely and valid. We need robots on that. Beyond that, there's not a whole lot that I'm going to say. Jesus died for our sins, and he rose again. He is the Son of God. You know, and he is the only way to heaven. Now, you know, it's not a whole lot more than to say, and you've got to believe everything else. Now, if you tell me I don't, then I'm going to ask you why. You know, if you can't tell me why, then I'm going to say you need to really study what you believe to make sure that you know why. All right? I believe a lot of things, and I've already told you, there's a lot of things that I'm on some of the fringe areas. Not that I'm not outside of the you know, Bible but, and outside of what anybody else thinks, but there's a lot of areas where I'm in the minority opinion. And I like being in the minority opinion. My, anytime I'm in the majority opinion, I start really, really thinking about what I'm believing and saying, am I right? Because even in the Bible, the ma majority is almost always wrong. So anytime I'm with the majority, I get nervous. And I really analyze. If I'm in the majority, I'm going to analyze it more than, you know, more than if I'm in the minority because people just don't think correctly most of the time. 
And uh, so I want to be very careful. And I want to know why I believe. What is it I believe? Why do I believe in it? And you know, nothing, you know, in, in the places where I'm in the minority, it doesn't really matter. They're not life, death, heaven, or hell issues. Uh, the heaven or hell issues, I want to be in the majority because they better be, the majority better be right. And Jesus being the Son of God, dying on the cross, being raised from our sins, and being the only way to salvation, you, actually that's now the minority opinion in most churches, but it is the, the majority Christian. You know, to be a Christian, you have to believe those things. You know, do you have to believe in a six-day six day creation with God resting on the seventh day to be a Christian? You don't have to. I don't know why you'd be a Christian if you don't believe it, uh, because if you don't believe in the fall of man because of, the, because of Adam and Eve's sin, then why did Jesus have to come to redeem the world? It just The rest of it all falls apart. If you don't believe the beginnings, the rest of it falls apart. You can still believe it. You can be schizophrenic and believe it, but why would Jesus have to come if there wasn't a fall? You know, so it doesn't, you know, the, the, the lock pins come together and God being a master at locking everything together, if you don't believe some of it, it you lose a lot of the validity of it. The reason I am the strong Christian that I am is because I look at the word of God and see how God has interlocked all the pieces together. Why did Jesus have to come? Because the first creation sinned and brought sin into the world and caused the fall that Jesus had to come to redeem us from. Without that peace being true, Jesus wouldn't have to have come. If God didn't create everything and it just happened, there would not be a God to have to come to redeem a fallen man because we wouldn't have fallen because there would have been nothing to fall from. So again, you know, if you don't believe in the beginning, the rest of it falls apart, which is why the atheists attack the creation and the fall of man so strongly. That's why they have to pin their hopes on evolution. Because evolution takes away every other linchpin piece of, of gospel and truth. Because if God did not create the world and it just somehow popped into existence, then God did not have to redeem the world because we didn't fall from a perfect state, because we haven't got to the perfect state, because we started imperfect and we are evolving into a perfect state, which is what evolution talks about, all right? And that's what a lot of the religion talks about. If I just learn to follow God closer and better, I will work myself into a perfect state where I can be worthy of my heavenly position that I'm trying to get, and that's what religion is all about. You know, when people go, all religions are the same, in one sense I'll say yes, as long as you, kick, as long as you understand that Christianity is a relationship with God, and not a religion, I will agree with you. All religions are basically the same. You know, and I will say basically, because they're not all the same, because they all have white, but basically they all, you're bad, try to work at being good. You know, try to work at being good. Christianity says, yes, we agree you're bad, but you can't work it well enough to get out of it. You need Jesus Christ. And we are the only group that says you need God to pay the penalty and the price so that you can be made perfect and go to heaven. All others are based in work. And this is why it's a relationship with God. And this is, I talk about it so often. We want to talk to people about a relationship. Not just, well, you know, I kind of believe that there was a Jesus. Yeah, I believe he existed. Okay, good, you do really well. You know, the demons believe that, believe that Jesus existed. They believe he died on the cross. They believe he rose again because they were there, they saw it. They're not going to heaven because they're not going to put their whole trust in him. They rebelled against him. They rebelled against him when they could see him. In heaven, before everything started, they rebelled against him and they saw him. Now, uh, we rebel against him having not seen him. But you know, all of this from the beginning, and he says, I want you to remember. I want you to remember. Verse 3 says, knowing this first. So the first thing he wants to bring to the remembrance, that there shall be... There shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they have from the beginning of creation. This is very interesting. He says, in those last days, scoffers will come, mockers, mockers, that will say, hey, you know, everything's going on. You know, and I've heard this. 
You, you keep talking about Jesus coming. They've been saying that for 2,000 years. Well, you're right. They've been saying it for 2,000 years, but we're a whole lot closer than we were 2,000 years ago. Maybe it's going to take another 2,000 years. I don't know, but we're still closer today to his coming than we were. And I understand if I was just purely walking outside of faith, not trusting God's word, I would probably be in this group. <laughs> would you guys shut up? You've been talking about 2,000 years that we're coming to the end. You know, but having a knowledge of God's word, I look at it and say, wow, he said things were going to get bad. The world says we're evolving into something better. We're getting better. I don't see us getting any better. I see us getting worse and worse and worse, just like the Bible tells us. In evolutionary terms, we're supposed to be getting better and better and better. So we're going the opposite way that evolution says we should be going, but we're going exactly the way God says we should. If we want to use evolutionary terms, we have been de-evolving since the fall of Adam and Eve. All right? We keep getting worse. And sin nature infects at a deeper and deeper level the further and further we get from creation of the world and the fall. And it's going to culminate to the place where God says enough is enough. And we get into, into the full end times. It's coming. And the scoffers, we've got a lot of scoffers out there. We've got people who say they're Christians who scoff. What is this return about Jesus? You know, you guys keep saying this for so long. You know, and I understand that to a degree. It's, it gets to be old sometimes. You know, okay, God, when are you coming back? You know, you, you've said 2,000 years ago you were coming back soon. Okay. And, you know, he's going to go later on. You know, days is 1,000 years. 1,000 years is a day. He's basically saying God is eternal. Soon is, soon is, doesn't matter to him. Soon is soon. Yeah. As humans, 2,000 years is not soon. From God's perspective, he's been around since eternity. In other words, he's they had no beginning. What is, what is soon to somebody with no beginning? <laughs> you know, uh, I have no beginning, I have no end, I'm coming soon. You know, 20 trillion years, it might be soon to them because even 20 trillion would be a drop in the bucket to their existence. You know, we'd been link an eye into their existence because they've been around so long that that isn't even a beginning, you know, from, our, from a human point of view, that'd be a huge amount of time, but God said, you know, I'm coming back. From God's perspective, there is no such thing as time. Time was created for man. Yeah. That's why when we get to heaven, there'll still be some form of time. It just won't be the time that we have because God has still given us something that we can exist in. And the new covenant made it from B.C. to A.D.? Uh, well, it began, it marked things. Well, that was a human, human thing to say that, but... You know, longer than that. <laughs> a lot longer than that. I can't remember exactly who it was, but it was several hundred years later that. Oh, you know. In the year of our Lord. Oh, I thought it was before Christ and after Christ. Nope. In the year, in the year of our Lord. Oh, A lot of people, a lot of people, you know, you, you have the classic mistake on it. So, uh, but that was several hundred years after he was born that we switched to that, that. And I don't like our, our, our new, new one, BC, being common, before common error and CE, yeah, yeah. common error. They've taken out AD because they don't want it referencing Jesus. So if you read any scholarly work, you're going to see uh, BCE or CE. Okay, I'd be more confused. Yeah. Uh, but he says, first, there shall come in the last day scoffers walking after their own lust. I, I read this and go, okay, that's exactly what we're facing. People are making their decisions based on what they feel, how they want, what will satisfy me. And we're getting a me-first generation, and Jude 18 talks about this same thing, scoffers in the last days, doing, living after their own lust. And as we're seeing in our day, people are more and more living in what they want. You know, the sin is coming out of the closet and saying, you're going to accept me because this is who I am and you're just going to accept me because this is what I want to be. And we're getting a 
redefinition of the word tolerance. For all of us that are older, tolerance means that you have the right to be wrong. And I'm going to tolerate your rights to be wrong. Today's definition of tolerance is that we have to give them equal weight, that what they believe is equally as important as what I believe. Sorry, not going there. I'm going to say God says it's wrong. It is wrong. Whether you want to believe it's good or bad does not matter, which is going to put us at odds with the world and will lead us into persecution and death, just as it did with the apostles and all the prophets before them. Okay? Prophets, we look at it and think, well, these prophets were so good. They were so, you know, God, you know, God used them. They were listened to. Most of them died a martyr's death. Isaiah, one of the great prophets of, of Israel, was stuffed into a hollowed log and sawn in half. Jeremiah, we kept being thrown into prison every time he got turned around, and he was finally killed at the, you know, toward the end. You know, he was thrown into prison so much in dungeons and everything that he finally went to God, you know, God, I'm not speaking for you again because I'm always running into trouble. And it says, the words burned in my mouth and I couldn't but speak. All right? The world is living after their own lustful ideas. That's the world we're living in. Paul, uh, Peter and Paul, that was the world they lived in. We hear all the time that we're living in a post-Christian world. And I've said this so many times, we're actually living in a pre-Christian world or returning to a pre-Christian world. We are returning to what used to be. But for 2,000 years, we have lived in a world that is, at least for America and Europe, that has been predominantly Christian. And we've had a whole different way of thinking. Now, if you lived in Africa, the Middle East, or Asia, you did not have strong Christian influences, and they've always been in a non-Christian world. If you go visit Asia and, and Africa, you see things that just will shock you because it is so contrary to the way we think of as Christians. Things are done that we go, how can they do that? How could they believe that? But they're living in a non-Christian world which is what Europe and America is returning to. Now, South America has been a strange mix because they have mixed Christian with their, with their non-Christian views, and they've been a kind of an oddball place altogether. But they're also returning to a non-Christian world where Christian truth and morals are less important. Europe is way ahead of America in its non-Christian non thinking, and it's becoming more and more like the rest of the world. You know, and for us as Americans especially, we judge everything by, well, this is right and wrong. And we still think of right and wrong in biblical terms overall. It's getting dwindled down. It's getting lessened. But there are places where truth doesn't mean anything. Not that they believe there isn't truth necessarily, but it just doesn't mean anything. Somebody says they're going to do something, it doesn't matter as long as it's not good for you know, if it's good for me, I can tell you whatever I want to believe. And there are religions out there that teach you that you can you know, lie to, the, you know, lie to the enemy, and the Muslims do that. They are taught that they can lie to the enemy. If they're, you know, they've got to speak the truth to other Muslims, but they can say whatever they want to the, to the rest of the world, and they do. We're a peaceful religion. We wouldn't hurt anybody. You know, Muhammad told us to kill everybody who wasn't a Christian, uh, wasn't a Muslim, you know, kill Christians, the Jews especially, but if they were false teachers, kill them all. But we're a peaceful religion. We wouldn't hurt anybody. All right, we go through this over and over, and they're not the only one out there. All right, the the Mormons had the same thing. All in the West, they would ride into town, and you, when they left, you, the town was either dead or Mormon, one or the other. They followed the same satanic purpose: you rode in and converted everybody, or they died. Unfortunately, the Catholic Church for a century, for several centuries, did the same thing. They rode into town with the Crusaders, and you were either a Catholic or you were dead when they went out. All right? And this is a problem that has been out there because that's what religion does. You will convert because we're right, and if you don't, you deserve to be dead because you're an infidel. Christianity has not had that, true Christianity has not had that view. They go in, they help people, you convert if you want, you don't convert if you don't want to. And Christianity has had its problems as well. During the Reformation, our great reformers 
Luther, Knox, Calvin had the same attitudes, unfortunately. Convert or die, for many cases, if they went after their enemies ruthlessly when they had the strong points. So we're not completely pure with our leaders of that. But it's not Jesus' way. Jesus has always been loving. Serve somebody when they don't deserve it. Be kind to them. And if they reject, they reject. If they accept, they accept. And this is why I want to be that gentle person. I just want to present the gospel. This is the way to heaven. Now the consequences if you reject it is hell. And I'm going to be straightforward with them. There is something that is out there and you will pay a price eventually. But your options are there. You're going to make, and Jesus is gentle. He's gentle. He's not going to make people accept him. And he's going to be heartbroken when they reject him. I can almost picture God at the white throne judgment in tears as he sends his beloved creation into an eternal hell that they chose. Knowing how much he tried to win them and gave them opportunities to turn to him and rejecting him at every turn and knowing the emotions that he has, I can almost picture that he's going to be in tears when he pronounces this as judgment. Depart into the everlasting damnation and they get taken away and I can picture him in tears because he rejected him. Not laughing and happy that they're getting, getting the punishment. And this is the idea for us as Christians. What motivates us? Are we motivated by the love of God to see somebody not go to hell? Or, yeah, you're finally getting what you deserve. This is why I don't believe in uh, prayers that ask God to punish and, and, and hurt people. I don't believe that's his attitude. Yes, he will use that stuff. He will use it, but he is wise enough and knows the beginning from the end and knows what's needed to win them. I don't. I would rather see nobody hurt, but I know that some people have to be hurt to come to God. I would rather see God just give them grace and mercy. Yeah, I do not rejoice when somebody suffers, and I've seen several people that have, that have suffered because of their sin, suffered because of their mistreatment of other Christians, and I don't get all excited and rejoice in it because they're going to hurt. And when they hurt, innocent parties can sometimes be hurt because of their punishment that they're taking. And I've, all, I've shared with you the man that kept going after a pastor and he got sick and his, he got a divorce and a couple of his kids died and I know it's because of his rejection and of what he was doing and yet it wasn't just him that suffered. You know, now I'm not saying the rest of them were innocent. I mean, don't get me wrong because in reality nobody's innocent. When somebody says, why, does, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? You've got to get rid of that idea that there's a good person in the first place. Okay. My big question has always been, why does good things happen to all of us bad people? Because of God's mercy and his grace. That anything good happens to any of us, saved and unsaved. It's God's mercy and grace. It's his mercy and grace that he just doesn't wipe out the world, which is what we deserve, period. And even for us that have been Christians for a long time and we've had a lot of sanctification in our life and we've been growing in him and, and as far as the world's concerned, we're really good people. God looks at us and says, you're just a bunch of sinners, you know, as much of a sinner as that. Because we get into Jesus' realm and say, you know, how, many, how many wicked thoughts do we have in each day? Even if I don't act on them. You know, how many times did I want to do what was wrong? How many times did I think about saying the lie to get out of trouble? How many times did I think about killing that person? How many times did I think about adultery or fornication or stealing something, you know, or, you know, and, and the longer we walk with God, the better we get at not acting on them, but that doesn't make us a good person in God's eyes. It just means that to the world we look like a good person. All right? And yet God allows us to live for him. And this is so important. We have just the same lusts as the rest of the world. God just strengthens us so we don't necessarily act on them. 
He's made us a new creation, so maybe we recognize it faster and don't act on it and ask God to help us with it. And maybe if we're really close to God, some of those things have been put to death and crucified so that we don't really have to deal with them because God has killed them. The only problem is there's so much more. He tells us that our heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? And that means even us. How many times have we done something, we can go, where did that come from? Or even a thought, where in the world did that thought come from? You know, and it's like, God, am I really that evil inside me? Yes. <laughs> yes. And I've shared this over and over. God, I'm glad that God doesn't shine the bright light so that we see everything in our heart from the very beginning because we would just fall apart. He shows us just enough to say, okay, start dealing with it. Start dealing with what you're seeing now. I've, I, I've got your 10-watt bulb in your five. Let's say you got a 5-watt bulb in your heart. You know, we're going we're gonna to show you just a little bit. Just a little bit. Clean it up. Oh, you got that cleaned up? Okay, let's put a 10-watt bulb in your, in your heart. You know, not a 20-million candle power to light up our entire heart. And that's just it. We couldn't take it. If he showed us how really evil we are, we'd probably commit suicide because of how evil we would realize all of a sudden we, we are. Because we think of people like Stalin and Hitler and, and you know, these guys and saying, well, they're really evil, and they were. But every one of us have in our heart the same evil abilities if, if God was to really let them go. And most of us don't. We have some kind of thing that keeps us in check. But, you know, he says, these people mock his word. They scoff at it. And they say, it's always been the same. What did, what did Ecclesiastes tell us? It's been the same. Nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun. And there really isn't anything new under the sun. People have been scoffing from the beginning. In Noah's day, he's building an ark to protect them because God is going to destroy. Well, what are you talking about, Noah? It's been like this forever. No, you know, God is not... You know, God has not judged us. You know, we've been getting, you know, we've been starting to do all these things. There really is no God, you know, because if there was, we would be, you know, if there was a God, he would have judged us. He hasn't judged us, so therefore there is no God. And what's this rain thing you're talking about? You know, there's no such thing as rain. You know, and, you know, this, if they believe in God, God is all love. He's going he's gonna to accept everybody. Anything new under the sun? Nope. Same things being talked about. Strong preachers, strong churches are being laughed at by people. You guys believe that Jesus is coming back? You believe in the fairy tales of the Bible? You believe that God created the heavens and the earth and evolution isn't true? You believe that there is a God? You believe that there's going to be a judgment? Laugh, laugh, laugh until the raindrops fall. And of course, they're not raindrops in the second judgment, but you know, going back to our Noah <laughs> illusion. In the ark, Noah and his family got in and it said, God shut the door. Why did God shut the door? I really believe it was because as soon as the rain started, there were people pounding on that door, let us in, let us in. They had, they had 120 years that Noah preached that this is coming. You know, well, just like this, 2,000 years coming soon. You know, 120 years, Noah, the story's getting a little old. Nothing's happened yet, you know, you know. And he might have had a following those first couple times. Yeah. You know, maybe the first 50, 60 years, okay, God, uh, Noah, when, when, is this, when, when is it coming? It's coming. God said it's coming. And he finally just left. And I'm not saying he did, but, you know, in our world, 2,000 years, we've had an ebb and flow of the church. Uh, what are you guys talking about? You guys have been saying this for a long time. Nothing's happening. I'll forget about this. And it happens in the church. They don't really have a relationship with God what's going on with you guys? You guys are getting stranger and stranger believing all this stuff. You know, the rest of the world's not believing it. And they start walking away if they don't have that relationship with God. You know, it's been said that the average church has very few Christians in it. You know, Barna says he believes it's only about 50%. I believe he's way too high in the average church. Now, there's some churches that are going to have a lot more Christians in it. You've got a pastor in there preaching the word, teaching the word. The Christians in that church are probably going to be closer to 50, 50 to 60 percent. There are churches out there where they probably only have one percent of the church. And I believe the average church probably only has about 10 
to 15% of the Christians in it. A lot of religious people, a lot of people who act good, a lot of people who believe what the Bible says mostly and live a quote-unquote godly life, at least on the outward, but are going to hell because they haven't made a relational decision to follow God. And this is very important for us. Relational decision. I know that there is a God. I know God and I'm following him and he's changing my life. And this is the important thing. Who's changing my life? Am I doing it out of my own volition? And I'm just taming my flesh. I'm taming my lust. I'm putting them in cages all around my heart. Okay, you stay in that cage. I got you caged up. Eventually it's going to come out of that cage. And when it does, it's going to come out with a vengeance. And, God's, and that's why God says, no, we're not caging our lust. We're not caging our desires. We are crucified with Christ, and he crucifies them and puts them to death. And there are areas in each one of our lives where God has literally crucified some of their desires, and in, those, in that area of our life, we're not tempted anymore because that desire for the flesh has been crucified. Not all of them, unfortunately. It would be so easy if he just came in and crucified all the lusts of the flesh. How easy would life be? You know, Satan would come and whisper to us, and we have nothing inside us that wants to do it. But Satan knows how to get to us. And because the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things, there are plenty of lusts down there that even if we got rid of hundreds of lusts, there's still something in there that would come, come up because of how evil we are. And this is what we have to understand. We are evil people in our flesh. Now, even those self-righteous people that think that they're there and that they've arrived, they're in actually bigger danger than anybody else because, number one, they're already self-righteous. But you don't put a guard on you because I would never do something like that. And this is what trips up some pastors sometimes. I would never have an, a, an affair with one of the members of my church because I'm married and I believe in God and I trust God. And then they start doing dumb things. Hanging out with women without, without anybody else around. Going out to lunch and dinners with them to counsel them. To counsel them one-on-one, -on -one, you know, which is an intimate event anyway. And there's nothing wrong necessarily with counseling. But, but I'm never going to sit on the same side, especially of a woman... <laughs> in counseling, you know, I don't want to keep space between us and I don't want that and I want to keep windows open. I want people to know what's going on. So there's no intimacy there because it's already an intimate relationship. You're digging into somebody's personal life and their and their and everything. And it's real easy. You've helped them. You you feel close to them because you've helped them. They start feeling closer to you because you've helped them and you can end up you know someplace you didn't mean to be, they didn't mean to be, and next thing you know you didn't have a guard on your heart, you weren't watching, and all of a sudden you find yourself crossing a line that you never, ever thought you would do. And this can happen with ease. We need to keep God in the center of everything and keep a guard. The Bible is full of keep a guard on your heart. Keep a watch. Don't let things get further than they should. And the problem is it sneaks up. It sneaks up. At the prison, we're instructed all the time, keep a guard, keep your eyes open. Watch the flatterers, and they literally do. They talk all the time. Watch these flattering inmates that are making you feel good, that you're the greatest thing since sliced bread. You're the one that's helped them improve their life because they're trying to set you up. Not all of them, but they can be, you know, you know they start talking to you, and then they get you to do something you're not supposed to, and then they've got you. Because once you've done something, you know, uh, I think like the Hogan's Heroes, Schultz was bought off. You know, he, you know, he could not go anywhere because he had turned his, turned his back so many times that if he did turn them in, you know, his life was forfeit. And it's really what happens out there. If we do, once we give in to any of our sins, we're in trouble. Because then we'll just be reminded by Satan of all the other places that we've messed up. And then if we don't feel that we can trust God's grace and his mercy, which most people don't when they're in that place, you know, won't turn back to God. And this is a sad thing because sometimes we fall as a Christian and we need to immediately repent, place ourselves at God's mercy and, and receive his grace. 
but we get this, well, God will never accept me. I've, I've screwed up so bad. I might as well just keep going because God will never forgive me and I'll never be, never be used by God again. And how could God ever use somebody as weak as me? God loves using weak people because when he uses weak people, he gets to show himself as strong. He gets to show himself to the people of, this is what I can do. Not what, not what I can do myself, but well, I want to do what God can do. And you know, the lost world really respects that because they look and they say, well, there's something different about this person. They fell just like I would, and yet they serve God. They haven't been thrown away. Maybe there is something to this God. And it does. I'm, and I'm not saying go out and sin just so you can be used that way, but you know, we sin often enough that we, we don't need to purposely do it. But when we do sin and fall, God will use it anyway. And he will honor it anyway. And we need to just be able to say, God, your grace is so wonderful. I want to trust you. Because the world is saying, hey, it's been like this forever. There's coming a day when the church is going to be taken out of this world. In an instant. The entire church is going to be taken out of this, out of this world. And if you start listening to the world, it's kind of an interesting thing. They're looking for the day that, that real Christians disappear because they know that Christians are different. We are the plague of the world as far as most of the, most of the world's concer concerned. Why? Because we keep telling them what they're doing is wrong. Now, we're losing our influence over, you know, the, the world is getting worse and worse, but imagine how bad it would be without the salt of the church involved with it. How far would abortion have gone along without the church telling them it's evil and murder? We would be full-scale abortion. How far would we be with assisted suicide being wrong if the church wasn't telling them it's wrong, it's sinful? You know, if we weren't there talking about these things and saying adultery is wrong, fornication is wrong, murder is wrong, theft is wrong, abortion is wrong, how far would this world be? Awful just as it was before Christ. You know, before Christ, the, the Romans, the Greeks, the, the Egyptians, the Canaanites, the, all those people, there was nothing wrong with fornication and adultery. It was practiced. You know, if you were strong enough to force somebody, you know, who cares? If they wasn't consensual, who cared? You, you know, and even at that, most of it was consensual. You, know, it was just, you just did it. And then along comes God saying, don't do it. The Israelites were considered weird. You didn't sleep with your brother. You didn't sleep with your sister. You didn't sleep with your uncle, your niece, your, your nephew, your cousins. You, the, the Jews were weird. Christian, Christians were weird. What do you mean you're not sleeping with, you know, you're not going and, and sleeping with anybody and everybody. And in our day and age, we're slipping back into what used to be. Because the church is having less and less effect on the world. One day we're going to be taken from this world and there will be no restraining influence on the world. Imagine how bad this world will get in seven years with no restraining influence. With the head of the government being the Antichrist, Satan himself, saying that do whatever makes you feel good. Can you imagine the murders, the thefts, the, the sexual activity that's going to be going on? I can't even hardly imagine it, and I can think pretty imaginatively in that area, but it'll be worse than anything we can think of. I'm glad we're not going to be here, but that's why it's so bad, because we aren't here. It'll be a miserable time when Jesus takes his church out of this world. It's seven years, and it says if God didn't shorten the time, that they would destroy each other. He's going to come right at the time when this world is on the edge of total destruction. Total destruction. And he, can, he returns. Because the world literally cannot take any more because of the evil that it's evolved into. I am glad we won't be here. And we will get to be here when he establishes his kingdom when we return with him. Which we'll talk more about that because this, this whole chapter is about the end times. So we'll talk a lot more about end times as we go into this. But it's coming. As much as the world scoffs at it, as much as some Christians even scoff at it, Jesus' return is coming. And I really, as I look around, I'm seeing signs that I think it's going to be very soon. You know, in one side, of maybe I've got, some, I've got my grandkids and everything, and I'd like it to either be very, very soon or 
couple hundred years from now, so that they, you know, because times are going to get worse. I'd love to see a revival and push it off for a couple hundred years and have my grandkids actually live in a world that's worth living in. But it's so dark, so miserable, so evil that I doubt that, I kind of doubt that there's going to be a big revival to push it off for 100 years or so. We are close. We're seeing the people attacking Christianity. They're attacking God. They're attacking morality. They're saying that all things are good and that anything that was good is bad. And, you know, if you have any righteous morals, then you're, then you're a bad person because you're judging all those people that are doing what they think is okay. And we are in a very upside-down, turbulent world, which means we're at the, very close to the days of Noah. And if it's got to get much worse than this, I don't know how bad it could be. I do know that we as Christians are going to suffer before the rapture. I'm really absolutely sure that we're going to suffer before the rapture comes. And the sad thing is, outside of America and most of Europe, Christians are suffering. In our day and age, more people die every year than have died in the first and second century of Christianity. Millions of Christians are killed just because they're Christians. Martyrdom is a huge fact of life in most of the world. We in America have had it so easy for so long that we don't even recognize that the rest of the world is suffering. And most of the martyrs do not ever hit the newspaper and the news. We don't know about them. It's coming our way. Even in America, we see the signs already. We're not yet being killed for our faith, but it's coming. And there's going to come a time when we're going to suffer, even in America, for being a Christian. And we need to prepare for it. It may be in our day. Probably even be in our day. It may still be 100 years from now, but it's coming. And we're already seeing the signs of it coming. But in this whole thing that we're looking at, we as a church need to stand for God. As Christians need to stand for God. Shine the light of truth on what's going on. Because what's the answer to all the problems of the world? It is not one world government. And that is where we're headed in that way very fast. But the Bible says we were going to go there anyway, so it's not a surprise. The elite in colleges are being taught that the answer to all their problems is to bring everybody under one government, get rid of borders, because if you listen to the news, the problem isn't that we have countries, the problem is the border itself. Everybody should have the right to go wherever they want because we're all one nation and we, it's the borders, it's the nations that are the problem. And this is what's going to happen. When everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes, it's whoever's strongest is going to be the victor. That's the ultimate of evolution. If you're strong enough, this is why when you look at Hitler, Hitler was the ultimate evolutionist. He was going to purify the world of everything that was impure, and he felt he was strong enough to do it, and for a while he was. And that's what evolution says, the strong survive. So when they have a bad time with somebody being abused, they're not following evolution because... Evolution would say this person's not strong enough to defend themselves. They deserve to be subservient or killed. Literally. Evolution would have no problem with rape. Would have no problem with slavery. Because if they're not strong enough to protect themselves, they deserve whatever they get. That's the ultimate of evolution. It's the opposite of Christianity. Christianity has always cared for the weak. Always cared for the helpless. Because they were created in God's image, they have value. They rescued the children being thrown into the river by the parents who didn't want them because there were too many of the one, you know, one sex or, or had some problem. They went into this, to the hospitals and built hospitals and built orphanages because they cared for the weak. The rest of the world just threw them away before Christianity. And what are we seeing in our day and age? No, the older are expensive. They, give, they eat up the inheritance of the family, kill them. Too many, too many kids? Too many kids? Get rid of the kids. Oh, you want free, you want free sex with no consequences? Just kill the kids. Kill, you know, have abortions, kill the kids, have all, you know, have all the fun you want and get rid of the consequences. The important thing for us to understand is God has a different way of thinking. And we're hearing it in our world right now. They really do believe that Christians are a problem. The problem of Christians. We're starting to revert back to so much of this stuff that we thought we were out of because we're returning. 
I, like I say, I don't like the idea of post-Christian. I, I like the word pre-Christian. We're returning to a pre-Christian world where people are doing what's right in their sight. And if you just studied history, and this is the problem that said if you don't study history, you're doomed to repeat it. And a lot of people say, no, you don't. Yes, you do. And that's what Solomon said, nothing new under the sun. We read the Bible and we see the political intrigue. We see the political correctness. We see everything that's going on now, we see in the Bible when we study it. And that's why it's so amazing to me when people, you believe what's in that ancient book, the Bible? I go, you need to read it. <laughs> you need to read it and look at it. You, you, you'd be thinking you were reading today's newspapers in, in many cases. But, you know, we look at this and Peter is saying, remember, I want to remind you. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for how much you love and care for us. Lord, help keep us in remembrance always. Bring teachers into our hide and let your Holy Spirit guide and lead us and bring to remembrance what we know when we're being tempted and tried. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.